At the end of November, we began a series through the Gospel of Luke. Our, our Gospel readings, the, the sermons, they were focused going scene by scene through Luke's Gospel. We've seen that Jesus is remarkable. He's the one and only agent of the one and only creator God. He's the, one and, he's the agent of the one and only true God's work in this world. He's unique in mind-boggling ways. He's what the Bible calls the son of God. God himself in the flesh who is this agent, this unique agent of God's redemptive work. God's work to renew and remake the entire creation and ourselves. To renew us, to heal us, to save us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to ourselves, to each other, to the creator, to the creation. We've seen that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord. And as I said, we've been reading through Luke's gospel scene by scene. But starting today, we're going to shift gears. For today and the next four Sundays, we're going to back up and look at Luke's gospel as a whole. And we're going to come to Luke's gospel with a question. How does a person, how do you, how do I, how do we actually follow Jesus? How do we become a part of what God is doing in this world? What does God show us through Luke's gospel about being what Christians call, what the Bible calls, a disciple of Jesus? How can you and I join with Jesus? How can we serve God's purposes in the world today? So over the course of this Sunday and the next four Sundays, we're going to see, we're going to see the five basic issues that Luke returns to over and over in his gospel that characterize following Jesus. Over and over, he keeps hitting on five themes, five fundamental characteristics of being people who align themselves with God's purposes in our world. And we're going to start with this. How do we actually get started on this? How do you and I begin to follow Jesus? How do we enter the journey of a disciple? Or to put it another way, how do we become members of God's family, of Jesus' people, of the church? Or to put it in a way often used in in some parts of Christianity, how do we get saved? How do we convert? Now, if you're reading Luke's gospel and you're drawn to Jesus and you want to be a Christian, you want to be a Jesus follower, and you ask, how do I do that? How do I get started? Well, unfortunately, the answer is quite complicated. I mean, if you've ever actually read the gospel and the Bible in this way, saying, well, what do I do? How do I get started? If you read through Luke's gospel, it's a narrative. It's not a systematic treatment. 
It doesn't boil it down to principles and points. Instead, it gives us stories of various people who encountered Jesus along the way. And the, and the beautiful but frustrating thing is that no two stories are the same. It's like real life. It's actual people. With all of their differences. Encountering Jesus. What I mean, if you're, what I mean is this. If you're looking to the gospel of Luke. And, and, and you're seeing people following Jesus. And you want to do the same. You're going to notice that Luke is not taking it upon himself. To smooth out the various accounts. Into a single repeatable format. Well, this complicates matters for those of us who are reading this and drawn to it and want to become followers of Jesus. For those of us who want to convert. But at the same time, it's actually pretty cool. It's the beauty of story because it gives, it gives us this ability to see the The real way people encounter Jesus. And if you've been a part of Christianity very long, you'll know that your story is probably very different from the story of the person sitting beside you. That it worked out in different ways, in different paces, in different times. That that story is actually a remarkably powerful way To portray the varieties of experiences with Jesus. And yet, when we pull back and look at all of these different people encountering Jesus. And beginning the journey of following him. We see that while it is a bit of a challenge. While it does work against systems. We can actually begin to notice Recurring themes. Common phenomenon expressed in wonderfully different ways. In wonderfully different personalities. We can see that there are some things that those who follow Jesus share in common as they enter the faith. So for the remainder of this sermon... We're going to look at these. We're going to look at various stories and point out what they have in common. And while it fleshes out in very different ways concretely, there is, there, there is this common set of threads running through all of these stories. Five threads, in fact. And the first one we see is this. When we look in Luke's gospel, we see that following Jesus is possible always and only because of Jesus' initiative. What I mean is that Luke portrays Jesus as going to people and calling them, inviting them to follow him. Jesus instigates following Jesus. This is what we saw in our gospel reading this morning, earlier in the service, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And we see it again, look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find Luke chapter 5, verse 27. 
After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And we'll not take time to read, but we also see it in chapter 9, verse 59. In chapter 18, verse 22, it goes on over and over. This happens. God in Christ takes people by the hand and calls them to himself. Becoming a Christian, this is so important. Becoming a Christian isn't about a vague, general, religious awareness. And it's not about the ability to believe several hard-to-believe facts. And it's certainly not a kind of gullibility which puts us out of touch with genuine reality. Following Jesus is a matter of hearing God call you with a voice that's dimly familiar, that you dimly recognize, calling you with a message that's simultaneously an invitation to love and a summons to obedience. It always starts there. But it doesn't stop there. Becoming a Christian, you see, involves not only hearing, but also responding. Faith is the second stream, the second thread. It's an explicit requirement in Luke's gospel to start the journey as a disciple. Faith is the first and foremost response to God's invitation. Over and over in Luke's gospel, we see that the most appropriate way to respond to this voice is to believe in him. Look at Luke chapter 5 verse 20. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Look at chapter 7 verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that follows said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Look at that same chapter, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at chapter 8, verse 48. Again, another person, another encounter, another story. And he said to this other woman, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And then jump over to chapter 17 and look at verse 19. Another person, another story, another encounter. And he said to this man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And then look one more example of of so many we could have picked from. Look at chapter 18, verse 42. And Jesus said to this other man, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Over and over again, beginning the journey of following Jesus is hearing him and responding in faith. And what is faith in Luke's gospel? Faith is a matter of believing and trusting in Jesus. 
that he is indeed God in the flesh. Believing that the true God, the world's creator, has loved the world so much, you and me included, that he has come himself in the person of his son and has died and risen again in order to exhaust the power of evil and death and to create in our world something which is new. To put everything right. To replace sorrow with joy. This is the first and most appropriate response to the good news of what the creator God has done in Jesus. That God has raised Jesus from the dead and has thereby declared in a single powerful action. That in Jesus, he has launched the long-awaited kingdom of God. And by means of his death, the evil of this world has been defeated. Faith. Believing that. Really trusting that. The next thing we see in Luke's gospel is that over and over again, not only does our response to God include faith, It also includes repentance. Now this shows up, it seems like, everywhere in the Gospel of Luke. The first encounter we get with this, turn to chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. John, Jesus' cousin, is helping people get ready for Jesus. And they say, okay, all right, we want to get ready for what God is doing in Jesus, in this world. So what do we do? And notice what John says. Luke chapter 3, verses 10, starting in verse 10. The crowd said to him, what do we do? And he answered, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. What's going on here? What we're seeing is that following Jesus requires us to see the ways in which we have been living our lives short of the mark. Falling short of complete and genuine and glorious humanness. In the Bible, the primary meaning of sin is not to break the rules, it's to miss the mark. That's the primary meaning. Missing the mark of being a true human. And the more conscious we are of our own inability to get it right, and even our own flagrant disloyalty to that call to live as genuine humans, the more we hear this call as what it most deeply is, the more we recognize here is the offer of forgiveness. It's the summons to receive God's gift of a slate wiped clean. A totally new start. To repent is to recognize that you can't set up a staircase of your own achievements 
as if God will somehow, based on that, favored you with forgiveness. With his favor. To repent is to recognize we can't ever earn God's favor by our own efforts. To follow Jesus, to become a member of God's family, a member of his people, to convert to Christianity, you have to redirect your heart and your life toward the purpose of God. And you have to make this concrete. That's John's point. It's not a vague kind of prayer, I'm sorry. No, it's a concrete repentance. It's pushing into your actual life, right? To the soldier, he says, here's what it looks like for you. To the tax collector, here's what repentance looks like for you. To you, he would say it. And if you listen, he'll tell you. Here's what repentance looks like for you. You have to make it concrete. You have to redirect your life. Your habits, your way of living to Jesus. You have to embrace the challenge of reflecting in your actual daily practices a way of living that is appropriate to God's children. And not everyone does this in Luke's gospel. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 57. As Jesus, as he and his followers were going along, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, right? I want to be a part of this. I want to join the kingdom. I want to be a Christian in our modern language. I want to convert. I want to become a member of your family. I want in on this goodness that you have to offer. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But this person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet to another he said, Yet another said to Jesus, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is very complicated. It deserves a whole sermon on it to explain that Jesus isn't actually saying you have to be a jerk. If I had that whole sermon, I would, I would end up getting to this place. Here are would-be disciples who refuse to reorient their particular lives around God and his plan that is manifested in Jesus. These are particular people who have found particular ways to refuse to repent. Repentance is a serious Turning away from the patterns of your life which deface and distort genuine humanness. It's, it, 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 it isn't just a matter of feeling sorry about particular failings. But that is important. That's definitely part of it. It's that. But it is more than that. Repentance is recognition... That the living God has made us to reflect his image and his world. And we haven't done it. And we're sorry for that. And we allow him to direct us in a reorientation. 
So repentance is redirecting your life so that you serve only one master. This is what Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 13. Don't turn there, but listen. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is Jesus talking about a particular thing that maybe nobody in this room has ever struggled with. That was... It's funny because it's the opposite, you know? That's how that kind of humor works. Is that the one he would put his finger on in your life? That by orienting your life toward money in such a a consuming way, you have lost true humanness? And you treat other humans as if they don't have the image of God in them? Is that the one he'd put his finger on in your life? Again, when we're looking at Luke's gospel as a whole, at lots of different people who have very different encounters with Jesus, and we're asking, what keeps showing up? What does Luke keep highlighting as common in all of these? For those of us who want to follow Jesus, to be a part of God's family, to be saved, over and over we see Luke highlights, first of all, it is God's initiative. Secondly, there has to be a response of faith in Jesus and A move of repentance. We see something else that Luke gives attention to. Those who want to follow Jesus have to actually, and here it's all about one little word, have to actually be with Jesus. Again, it comes up over and over and over. Luke chapter 6 Look at verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. And Simon, who was called the zealot and Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down. Look at this word. With them. Now jump over to chapter 7. Look at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Jump to verse 11. And soon after that, he went down to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Jump to 22, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with with his disciples. Go to chapter 9 and look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a place Called Bethsaida. Now jump toward the end. Jump to chapter 22. We could keep going. It's interesting to underline all the verses. That either use the word with Jesus about the disciples. Or some picture they paint of that. But jump to chapter 22. Look at verse. verse, Starting in verse 11. Tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover. With my Disciples. Look at verse 14. 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles were with him. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me. Look at verse 39. And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Luke does this more than any other of the gospel writers. Over and over and over. He wants to pound it into our imaginations. That being with Jesus is critical. Now what is this being with Jesus? Well, in Luke's gospel, it's about companionship. It's about identifying with him personally and being shaped by his life and his mission. Being a Christian is not just a matter of believing that God exists. That's clearly involved. Like I said earlier, it's a matter of hearing someone, big S, capital S, someone call you with a voice you dimly dimly recognize, calling you with a message that's simultaneously an invitation to love and a summons to obedience. It's so striking that this comes up over and over and over, that the call to be a Christian is not just about believing something in your mind. It's actually about a personal, intimate companionship, relationship with Jesus. Go back to chapter 6. Look at verse 13. In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and he prayed all night. And he continued in prayer to God. And when he came day, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. These 12 guys to be his apostles. And what's interesting, in Luke's gospel, he calls them to be his apostles, and then he doesn't give them anything to do. Not a single thing. Other than be with him. Being a Christian involves faith. And it involves repentance. And it involves an intimate, personal relationship. Companionship. With Jesus. That seeps into all of our days. And all of our actions. Into what we do on the job, it, it, it becomes the dominant, defining relationship in your life. One more thing. Look with me at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. In addition to God's initiative and faith and repentance and relationship with Jesus, one more thing. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It'd be fun to leave that one out, wouldn't it? One last issue that Luke focuses on as a non-essential for conversion, for becoming a Christian, for stepping into God's kingdom. Being a part of God's family. Self-denial. Daily cross-bearing is a shocking, hard-to-even-look-at image 
for what it means. What this means in Luke's gospel is you've got to embrace and serve God's purposes in your life in a single-minded way. Total loyalty. More loyal to Jesus than you are to your own self. Not just more loyal to Jesus than you are to your desire for bad things. More loyal to Jesus than you are to your own true self. Your own purest desires. This is driving the stake beyond you have to give up sin. All the way to Zeke's nature as an artist. And love for his daughter. This is going to the best things in your life. The most human part of your life. And saying more than that. You have to be loyal to me. Zeke loves his children more than any father I've ever known. And Jesus would say to him. You have to love me more. You have to love me more than any identity you wear. Anglican, Mennonite, businessman, wife. And I'm going to take you to places, Jesus says, where I continually bring this up. So you've got to carry around with you this instrument of death. Because at any given moment, you're going to have to plant it in the ground and climb up on it and die to yourself. Total loyalty. More loyal to Jesus than you are to your own. This is about allegiance. It's what emperors demanded of their subject. And the message of the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the true emperor ruling the world with his own brand of self-giving love. And to follow Jesus, you have to be able to do that. Like I said, it's a matter of someone calling you, calling you with a voice you dimly recognize, calling you with a message that is simultaneously an invitation to love and a summons to radical, total obedience. Listen to what Luke says. You don't have to turn there. Listen to what he says. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Radical obedience at the, at the level of self-denial. And like I said on Wednesday night, the only remaining absolute truth in the culture today is self-identity. And here Jesus says, even that. Like I said, it would be nice to leave that one out. So we've looked at all these diverse stories. We've roamed to and fro across Luke's gospel to see what does it take to follow Jesus. And again and again, he returns to these five themes. It's his initiative, it's repentance, it's faith, it's a personal relationship, it's self-denial. 
Now I want to pull back. And I want to let some of you off the hook. You see, when you read the stories, there's another issue that I find tremendously comforting. And before I name it, I want to show it to you in, in the life of the disciples. It's not, it's not a sixth thread. It's looking at all the threads together and how they develop in someone's life. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus chooses the apostles to be with him. Now, at the time, they don't know who he is. They don't know that he is the Messiah. They're just enthralled by him. And so they go with him. And they hear his teachings. And in fact, in chapter 8, verses 22 through 25... Jesus calms wind and water and waves while they're on a boat trip. And their response is fear and amazement. And then in the next chapter, as they keep cruising along with Jesus, in verses 1 through 9, Jesus gives these apostles who still don't fully recognize him. He gives them power and authority To go and preach and heal. Which is what he's been doing. Even though they don't really totally get him. It's it's amazing. That he allows him to do this. It's sort of like driver's ed. It's this liminal phase. And they do. And they have tremendous success. We see in Luke chapter 9 verse 6. But then in verses 7, 8 and 9. We see Herod. As an example of someone who doesn't really know who Jesus is. And the reason he gives us that picture of Herod in chapter 9 verses 7 through 9. Is because in the very next story the disciples are just like Herod. He wants you to recognize that they too. Even though they've been living with him and they're inching toward him. They're not there yet. And the way they're not there yet, the way they fail to comprehend Jesus for who he truly is, is that when faced with a hungry crowd, they want to send them away instead of exercising faith in Jesus' ability to provide for them. Which Jesus does. He provides for them and gives one basket of leftover to each of the apostles as a way of saying, in Greek, yo mama. As a way of saying, you doubted me? Here's what you need to recognize. And finally, in response to this miracle power and to Jesus' subsequent prayer, they get it. Ah, you are the Christ. Finally, they see him for who he is. And as important as that is, the rest of chapter 9 is they go back to forgetting it. To not really getting it. To not really understanding what it means. What's the point of all of this? It's this. Let me use an analogy. I didn't invent this. The first Christians actually invented it. Becoming a Christian 
is not a step process. First I believe, then I repent. Then I have absolute loyalty to Jesus. Then I develop. It's not, you don't tick these off like little steps along the way. No, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. And that's the danger of the sermon that I just did where I named them. Remember what I said at the beginning? These are stories and we're going to abstract out commonalities. But we're not giving them. We're never given them in that kind of way. And And a key reason we're never given, here's the things you check off, is because that'll skew you. In the way you think of these. Instead, let me use a different analogy. The analogy the early Christians used. Waking up. Becoming a Christian is like waking up. For some people, waking up is a rude and shocking experience. Right? Off goes the alarm. You jump in fright. Uh, This morning, I went very early, like around 4.30. Silas has a little fan by his bed. And it had dumped over. And I climb up to his loft and I tip it up and he suddenly sees me and it scares the bejeebers out. Do you remember this, Silas? Okay. He got very vocal. What are you doing? What's here? What's going on? Some of you have woken up this way before, right? Just suddenly and with a crash and it's just this rude and shocking experience. Other times when we wake up, it's quiet and slow. You're half asleep and half awake, not even sure which is which, until gradually, eventually, without any shock or resentment, you're happy that the new day has begun. Waking up is one one of the most basic pictures of what happens when a person enters the kingdom, becomes a Christian. Sure, there are classic alarm clock conversions. Paul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Right? John Wesley. Some of you in this room, like like Saul, like John Wesley, like a million others, you were going one direction and God crashed into you like a hurricane and you turned the other direction. But for many people, in fact, for most people, conversion isn't like that. It takes months, years, maybe even decades. And during this time, you're not sure whether you're on the outside of the Christian faith looking in or on the inside looking around trying to see if it's real. But the point is that there is such a thing as being asleep and such a thing as being awake. And you better be awake when it's time to be awake. The point is, be patient with yourself. But there comes a time when being awake matters or not. For some people, becoming a Christian is a deeply emotional experience. For others, there's not much emotion involved at all. It's a calm, clear-eyed resolution of matters long pondered. Our personalities are gloriously different and God treats us all gloriously differently. But at the end of the day, God wants you to wake up. To come through death and out the other side into a new sort of life. To become daytime people, even though the rest of the world isn't yet awake. We are to live in the present darkness as those who are awake by the light of Christ. Listen to this verse from Ephesians. Awake, 
O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Are you awake to God in Christ? Has the good news that the one and only creator God has acted decisively to put this world right by taking on flesh and walking among us in Jesus Christ, has this good news impinged upon your consciousness and have you responded in faith and repentance and opened up your life to a personal relationship with Jesus and, and the self-denial required to obey Jesus and to be loyal to him above all other allegiances. Are you awake? Are you stuck somewhere? Like the apostles, you got some of it, but not all of it. Step forward, step back. There is such a thing. I don't, I don't mean to confuse it so far that you're not awake. There's a lot of awake people in this room. There is such a thing as being converted. Some mothers, the labor with their children lasts a very long time. Shay was born in a car. While I was driving, Janelle delivered herself in the passenger seat. I'm not joking. <laughs> My sister was born over a labor that lasted 72 hours in a day when they allowed such things to happen. But there's such a thing as being born again. Would you please wake up if you're not? It's a good thing. Who would reject the offer of a clean slate and life with the Creator? Let's pray.